0: Section 6 of The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 3, edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Physics, Chapter 3, Heat, Part 1. It has been said that the history of man begins with the discovery of fire. How many conveniences of modern life are dependent, in the last analysis, upon the use of fire? It would be hopeless to attempt to enumerate. The survival of the human race, with its primitive undeveloped physique, helpless for defense or attack except by virtue of superior cunning, would never have been possible without the aid of fire. It is indeed a well-known fact that life in any form is directly dependent for its development upon conditions of temperature. The myriad forms of physical life that are hourly born upon the surface of the globe owe their existence to the heat radiated from a gaseous ball some 93 million miles away. All the heat in the world, excepting the negligible quantity reflected from the moon or transmitted from the stars, must be traced originally either to falling meteorites, or to the sun. The warmth of the air, the rocks, and the water is derived from these sources. Even the heat of a coal or wood fire is but an expression of solar energy, for it was the sun's heat which, through the growth of vegetable tissue yesterday, or a million years ago, transformed the incombustible soil into a form apt for the burning. The heat received by the earth from meteors would be nearly the same in amount as that which it receives from the sun by radiation, but for the probable circumstance that these meteors, reaching the earth's atmosphere at an exceedingly low temperature, radiate most of the heat engendered in their approach into outer space. For practical purposes, then, the sun may be considered as the original source of all terrestrial heat. No material body, it is true is quite devoid of heat, for as long as its molecules are in vibration, matter must radiate into the space surrounding this vibratory energy. Heat as a physical phenomenon, then, is the vibration energy of molecules of matter, solid, liquid, or gaseous. Here must be noticed the difference between radiant heat, so-called, and molecular heat. In the form of radiant heat, Energy is transmitted by the Sun to the Earth. It is converted from radiant heat into molecular vibration upon contact with the matter of the Earth and the material bodies, so incited, afford the phenomenon commonly known as heat. Anything like an exact study of heat was never possible before the disassociation of the ideas of the vibratory phenomenon of heat and the sensation of it. By the use of his sense of touch mainly, Man has learned to decide in a general way whether a body is hot or cold and whether it is gaining heat or losing it. Conclusions based on this sense of temperature, however, are likely to be very inexact or even wholly false. The sensation of heat may often be mistaken for that of cold and vice versa. If one hand is put into ice-cold water and the other into water as hot as it can endure and, after a minute or two, both hands are thrust into water at blood heat ninety eight degrees Fahrenheit. This same water will feel cold to one hand and warm to the other. Evidently, the temperature sense is a relative matter. Heat as a sensation must be relegated to the domain of medicine or psychology. Heat as a form of vibration, however, is a legitimate object of physical investigation. Previous to the nineteenth century, Physicists generally considered heat as an invisible, weightless fluid, which by passing into or out of a body caused it to become hot or cold. This view accorded readily enough with the facts observed in the heating of a body held in a flame or near another hot body. It did not account for the heat produced by friction. In 1798, Benjamin Thompson, Count Rumford, an American by birth, brought forward the molecular theory of heat, according to which the increase in the temperature of a body means simply an increase in the average velocity of its molecules. This theory, tried out and carefully tested by the great English physicist James Prescott Joule in an exhaustive series of experiments, has proved thus far the best working hypothesis of the nature of heat. The earliest traces of the theory that heat is matter writes Florian Cajori, are found in ancient Greece among Democritus and Epicurus. In modern times, it was advocated by Pierre Gassendi and George Ernst Stahl, author of that erroneous theory of combustion, according to which a burning body gave off a substance called phlogiston. One such agent paved the way for the other. In 1738, the French Academy of Sciences, offered a prize question on the nature of heat. The winners of the prize favored the materialistic theory. At first the only properties postulated for this material agent, called heat, were that it was highly elastic and that its particles repelled each other. By this repulsion the fact that hot bodies give off heat could be explained. Later it was assumed that the heat particles attracted ordinary matter And that this heat was distributed among bodies in quantities proportional to their mutual attractions, or their capacities for heat. By the close of the eighteenth century, this theory met with almost universal acceptance. Marat, afterward famous as a leader in the French Revolution, gave in 1780 an exposition of this theory by starting from Newton's corpuscular theory of light. Professor Clerk Maxwell, in his Theory of Heat, says, We must therefore admit that at every part of the surface of a hot body there is radiation of heat, and therefore a state of motion on the superficial parts of the body. Now, motion is certainly invisible to us by any direct mode of observation, and therefore the mere fact of a body appearing to be at rest cannot be taken as a demonstration that its parts may be in a state of motion. Hence, part, at least, of the energy of a hot body must be energy arriving from the motion of its parts. Every hot body is, therefore, in motion, the movements of the parts being too small to be observed separately. Tyndall defined heat as a mode of motion. It might more accurately be defined as a mode of motion of the particles of a mass. The greater the heat, the greater will be the motion of the particles. In accordance with the molecular theory discussed in the chapter on the properties of matter, any increase in temperature means simply this, and nothing more, an increased velocity of the molecules of the heated substance. If then the temperature of a body be lowered until the point of absolute zero is attained, there will then be no motion of its molecules nothing but mass would remain, absolutely motionless and in a state of perfect tranquility and rest. To speculate as to the probable condition of matter when the point of absolute zero has been passed, and the molecular motions have become, so to speak, negative, might be interesting but not profitable. As yet the temperature of absolute zero has never been attained, and all matter as known today is possessed of some molecular motion, some heat. The late Lord Kelvin has surmised that the ether may be constituted of the dissipated dust of atoms which have lost all vibratory motion of their own. This is admittedly a guess, and does not affect the generally accepted belief that ponderable matter is ever in vibration. The measurement of heat may be considered in any one of three ways it is possible first to measure the degree of heat in a body, as did Galileo with his air thermometer as early as 1592. Measurements of this kind, made with solids, liquids, and gases, have resulted in the establishment of extremely valuable physical data, more especially in the field of meteorology. Secondly, the actual amount of heat in a body may be measured. It is evident that a red-hot needle possesses a smaller amount of heat than a stove which is only moderately hot. The determination of the amount of heat possessed by a body constitutes the science of calorimetry. The calorie, or heat unit, is defined as the amount of heat necessary to raise one cubic centimeter of water through one degree centigrade. Joule reasoned that if the heat of friction were merely mechanical energy which had been transferred to the molecules of a heated body, then the same number of calories must always be produced by the expenditure of a given amount of mechanical energy. His investigations in calorimetry, whereby he determined the mechanical power corresponding to a given amount of heat, first proved experimentally the identity of various forms of energy. In a series of experiments lasting over nearly 30 years, he caused mechanical energy to disappear in as many ways as possible, and measuring the amount of heat developed, found it to be for a given amount of energy in each case the same. Thus was established the principle of the mechanical equivalent of heat. The English physicist found that the equivalent of the calorie in work was equal to 426.4 kilogram meters parenthetically, 3,081 foot-pounds. That is to say, the amount of heat necessary to raise one cubic centimeter of water one degree centigrade would, if all converted into work, be sufficient to raise 3,081 pounds through one foot of height, or what is the same thing, to raise one pound through 3,081 feet. The mechanical equivalent of heat is such an important constant in nature, that several physicists since Joule have thought it desirable to redetermine it. One of the most accurate determinations was made in 1879 by Henry A. Rowland of Baltimore. He obtained 427 gram meters as the mechanical equivalent of the calorie. A third method of measuring the heat of a body is a relative one. Specific heat is a term used in comparing the relative amounts of heat necessary to increase equally the temperature of equal weights of different substances. For example, glass and water. It has been found that more heat is required to raise the temperature of a pound of water, say 10 degrees, than to increase to the same extent the temperature of an equal weight of almost any other substance. Therefore, water is taken as a standard of specific heat and when the heat necessary to raise the temperature of glass 10 degrees is found to be five times as great as that necessary to raise the temperature of an equal amount of water 10 degrees, the specific heat of glass is determined at one-fifth, or point two. The value to the physicist and chemist of determining specific heats of substances is great, for a fixed relation has been found to exist between the specific heats of solids and their atomic weights. For this significant discovery, science is indebted to the researches of Berzullius, Reynaud, Dulong, and Petit. Matter is variously affected by heat. In general, it increases the volume of a body, but just as magnetism has sometimes the contrary effect as, for instance, its contractile influence upon nickel, so heat has sometimes the effect of reducing a body. Water, for example, is denser at 40 degrees Fahrenheit than at freezing, which is proven by the fact that ice floats, having about one-tenth of its volume out of water. Were it denser than water, this could not be. Again, type metal contains a small proportion of antimony, since antimony expands on solidifying, making the perfect sharp outline indispensable to good type. With the exceptions noted, however, the law is general that bodies contract with cold and expand with heat. Railway rails are always laid with a slight space between them to allow for the expansion in the hot days of summer. Iron bridges frequently have a roller at one end to provide for the difference of length. The steel suspension cables of a bridge a mile long will vary in length nearly four feet between summer heat and winter cold. If the heat applied to a substance is strong and continuous, the result is a change of state. Solid ice becomes water, water becomes a vapor. A great deal of energy is absorbed in this transformation of state. It takes nearly as much heat to change a pound of ice into a pound of ice water as to heat the same water to boiling. It takes more than five times as much heat to change the water into steam as to raise its temperature from freezing to boiling. Conversely, a great amount of energy is liberated by the condensation of steam, a fact well illustrated in the immense power of the steam engine. And no small amount of heat is set free when water freezes. The country in the neighborhood of large lakes is thus appreciably warmed by the congelation of the water. For exactly the same reason, the farmer often places tubs of water in his cellar that the freezing of the water may sufficiently warm the air to keep his vegetables from freezing. End of section 6